0: Hello Microbial Nation. This episode's a little different. It's a bonus one where I went on to the podcast In Plain English where I talked with co-host Jamie and guests Nicholas and Raymond and I talked about my paper that was published in 2020 where we looked at how gut bacteria can protect against cholera infections. I really enjoyed myself and I hope you enjoy the episode too. Remember, go check out their website. And we'll link it in the show notes. And I hope you and your microbes enjoy this episode. Till next time, everyone.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 10th episode of In Plain English. I'm your host, Jamie Moffa. On this episode, we're going to be discussing the paper Interpersonal Gut Microbiome Variation Drives Susceptibility and Resistance to Cholera Infection by Salama Alavi et al. Uh, presenting this paper is Jonathan Mitchell. Jonathan, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Mitchell. I was a graduate student back in 2020 when this is published. This is actually my master's uh, thesis is in this paper. Currently, right now I work in the biotech and or the farm industry at uh, Takeda Biosciences, and I work developing a biotherapeutic for uh, gut disorder. Pretty much that is, uh, in layman's terms, a probiotic, more or less, that's FDA-regulated and clinically proven. Uh, We're getting close to phase one trials, too, so excited about it.
1: That's very exciting, yeah. Joining us for this conversation are Nicholas Scruton alvarado and Raymond Umacchiao, Uh, Nick, Ray, would you like to introduce yourselves?
2: Oh yeah, my name's Raymond. I'm a uh, rising second year at the Virginia Tech Carolian School of Medicine. And I'm excited to be discussing this paper with all of you.
3: Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Nick. Uh, I'm a rising fourth year PhD candidate at Northwest University in the Department of Neurobiology, where I study cerebellar development.
1: Well, without further ado, John, take it away.
3: I guess I will start by
0: saying what is cholera infection. So I don't know if people are aware of this or not, but Vibrio cholera has been around for a long time. That's a bacteria that causes cholera infections. You may have heard of uh, John Snow and the Broad Street Pump. That is probably the one of the most well-known stories uh, back in the... was it 1700s 1800s that's when there was an outbreak in uh, London and this person was able to pinpoint where the uh, infection was coming from and it was really the start of epidemiology but that's a completely different story so what what this disease is is um it really affects areas that don't have water treatment well established so it's developing countries countries that actually have um monsoon seasons. And it affects millions annually. And so, like I said before, it causes a severe diarrheal infection. The way it does this is it has like these two genes that really, or these uh, two virulence factors. These are things that the bacteria will express once it's in the body to really help it. One is called uh, the toxin co-regulate pilus and the cholera toxin. Now, the pilus is what the bacteria uses to hold onto the lining of your intestine, and the toxin is actually this toxin that causes the diarrhea. Um, this will actually come in play later on in the paper. Saying that, this is kind of where the gut microbiome comes in. And for those that don't know, the gut microbiome is really the consortium of all different microbes in your gut. It's very dynamic, and we still don't know... if more than a fraction of what really is going on in there. The theory behind this paper is uh, healthy, quotations for healthy, because there's no definition of what a healthy gut microbiome is. There's only really what a unhealthy or dysbiotic Uh, Microbiome is. Now, what is the difference between the two? A healthy is generally considered healthy when it has a lot of different microbes. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of different species, while a dysbiotic is a lot less. So there's a lot less species and a lot lower amount of bacteria overall. So the theory behind this paper, just based off of previous studies, is is it the microbiome that's helping? prevent cholera infections or helping mitigate cholera infections. So a healthy microbiome is hypothesized to prevent or mitigate cholera infection. The first half of the paper is from Selma Elevy. She did a lot of the experiments and the bioinformatic work. The paper took a, a two-pronged approach to studying the effects of a microbiome. It involved the construction of of a microbial community. So this was an artificial microbiome that we created in in lab. And the second involved studies with, you can call them FMTs, which are fecal microbiome transplants. So this was actually human feces that was taken from a person and transplanted into a mouse.
3: How do you, how do you create a synthetic microbiome? Is there like a requirement for what a microbiome is, or can you just throw bacteria together and call it a microbiome
0: yes and yes um so (laughs) um it really depends on what you're doing so i'm actually going to take a look at the first figure anyone that's uh that's listening that has like the paper i don't know if you're going to be adding a link to it but it's the first figure a
1: uh you can download the paper on our website at inplaneenglishpod.org.
0: if you want to come along with everyone and take a look at the first figure. So we have our model microbiome. Now, so this was actually developed based on previous uh, studies, uh, previous research, and also looking at the composition of the, the quote-unquote healthy human microbiomes that are collected in the U.S. We have a resistant, which is, you know, supposedly that will uh, co- prevent color infection in dysbiotic or susceptible. You know how I told you that um, healthy has more diversity or more species? Well, so our resistant microbiome has a lot more. And their species that are picked to represent, it can't fully represent, but it's supposed to represent what is found in a healthy microbiome. So these are species that re- that are found in genre, that that are commonly found in healthy microbiomes. And the same can be said for a dysbiotic. Yeah, in essence, these are representative of what has been seen before, along with what we saw in the human fecal fecal microbiomes that were collected. You know, you can't fully create a human microbiome, because like I said, you're taking hundreds and thousands, and who can really grow all that up at once and then create that? So... You have to kind of settle with this uh, representation of what there is. In these previous uh, uh, studies also, there there's a lot of studies of color are actually conducted in Bangladesh, um, which sees uh, a lot of color infections or uh, it's still endemic in that area, I believe to this day. One way to look at microbiomes is like how it differs from person to person, right? Uh, it can differ differ between you and me or even the people we live with. So as I described, we had these complex uh, or these resistant and dysbiotic. What Selma ended up doing is she gavaged uh, germ-free. So what gavage is, is that's when you take like a a, a needle and you introduce something into the stomach of a mouse. Um, It's not a sharp needle, but it it takes a lot of practice, and so what you're doing is you're you're growing up these microbes, and then you're you're injecting them into the mouse in their gut, and it gets into their intestines. And for those that don't know, germ-free are mice that are grown up that don't have that never been exposed to microbes. They don't have anything in or on them. It's very difficult. Uh, I've accidentally had to restart our colony a couple times due to contamination. Um, And it's not fun, but it is an interesting process. As
2: someone who doesn't know much about um, putting together these uh, animal models, something I'd like to know is um, how is that, first of all, possible? And also, um, you know, do these uh, mice that are supposedly germ-free, are they capable of surviving without a microbiome?
0: So that's a very good question. Most living organisms haven't evolved to live without microbes. I mean, there is very few germ-free models out there because we need microbes to live. It just so happens that we stumbled upon an organism that can live without microbes. That being said, you know, organisms can't, create everything for themselves there's vitamins there's minerals or amino acids that they cannot make so you have to really enrich their food to give them what they're missing i think there is like a plant germ-free model out there but for what i've been told it's very sad looking i think plants are like the perfect example because they really can't live without you know those the the rhizosphere without those um the fungi and the microbes for nitrogen fixing and uh, nutrient sequestration, sequestering, sequestering.
2: That's incredible. If this is something you'd like to go into, um, would you be okay with explaining how you prevent these mice from accidentally acquiring a microbiome through like um, bacteria that just happen to be around
0: them? You have to like grow them and keep them in a bubble. There's different ways to... It's called sterilization. It's removing any microbe from the environment, from the inside. Uh, what we ended up using was uh, a compound called clydox and it's it's if you were to give like bleach steroids that's that's all I can really describe of what it acts like. It kills everything, so you set that up, you put the mice in there and then you pretty much have to what you do is you have to what's called autoclaving, you have to put any like food, under high pressure and heat to kill anything that might be in there.
2: Got it. Thanks for introducing uh, this uh, germ-free model for me because uh, the idea of it just so um, out there.
0: The reason why it works for microbiome is you need to account for as many variables as possible, right? And guts naturally have a lot of microbes, so you need to make sure they're not in there. We're, we're transplanting human microbes into an animal, and there are studies out there that show that if you don't clear, like if you don't remove the microbes of that animal, what you're putting in is, won't uh, what they call like graft um they won't stay in the gut um the mouse hasn't evolved to have those microbes so it's natural microbiome is going to kick whatever you put in out there
1: where do you start because i was thinking about like a germ-free mouse has to be born to like a germ-free mouse mom but then how do you basically chicken or the egg like like where does this whole process start
0: so i believe how it started so what we got is luckily i didn't have to do this but we got germ-free mice they were actually shipped to us how they did it was i believe through c-sections originally it is believed that like the placenta the amniotic fluid is germ-free so if you don't contaminate that you can possibly have a germ-free mouse and i'm assuming they then gave it to a mother that was uh to foster that was given a bunch of antibiotics to clear out their system and then if you if you look it's pretty crazy the first germ-free like system they had is you had to put like a space outfit on like walk through surfactant into another chamber and just take care of the animal there um, I think it was like the sixties or something like that. It was it was insane looking. Going back, so we had you know these resistance susceptible community members, right? And then we what we did is we gavaged them into mice, and then we uh, subjected them to cholera, and we found that those that had the resistant microbiomes showed a uh, a lower a significantly lower amount of cholera. It was unable to colonize nearly as well as the uh, susceptible or the dysbiotic. And we also found that that the dysbiotic bacteria, if we actually gave them the resistant um, microbes, they were able to recover. They, they were able to have a, a lower amount of cholera. So, like, if you look in, I believe it's figure... 2a it's kind of strange um you look at it and obviously the resistant microbiome shows a lot less cholera but if you mix the two communities it's even lower i don't think we really address it in the paper um i don't we never figure out why it might be because it's even more complex you have an even more species really the end of the story is we're seeing that this comp this resistant microbiome is able to protect against cholera. Selma even developed a uh, simple resistant, and what she did is, I believe that's uh, three different species from the complex resistant or the, from the resistant microbiome. I'm sorry, it it actually showed the same trend as before. So we're seeing that even less there seems to be a specific bacteria that are able to prevent this cholera infection.
3: So when you say you subjected these mice to cholera, did you seed an infection or did you give them like a large, uh, a large volume of, of cholera strain directly in, in, into their, into their gut? Cause I'm seeing here like days post infections already starting quite high.
0: Yeah. So, um, we give a, a higher dose of, uh, cholera to start off with. So it is, it isn't a small amount. So Selma extended this to suckling, uh, mice. So. The reason is why suckling mice. Well, if you don't know, suckling mice are they're they're mice that have not weaned off the mother. And why do we do that? It it's because um their gut is closer representation of the human gut, even um in terms of color infection. So, in the adult in the adult mouse you can colonize with cholera, but they're not going to show those virulence gene, uh, gene activation in adult mice for whatever reason, but you do see that in uh, suckling mice. So because of that, we want to study like vir, uh, these virulence genes a little bit. And so what Selma did is she was able to clear the suckling mice microbiome with antibiotics prior and then was able to gavage in these... Uh, communities that we defined. She did some experimentation that showed that um, any residual antibiotics wasn't having a significant effect. Now, what does this have to do with infection? Well, we looked at a gene. It was called, I'm sorry, the TCPA. But that's one of the genes involved with both the pilus and the toxin formation. And we saw a uh, almost a log fold reduction. And the ...resistant communities as compared to the dysbiotic communities.
1: So the the like expression of this cholera gene... ...went down in mice that had the resistant microbiome... ...as compared to ones that had the like dysbiotic, not resistant microbiome.
0: Right. Exactly. And if anyone looks at the graph that shows that... ...you'll see a thing that says FOLD REC A expression. This is because... They use something called uh, qPCR because we need to, we're looking at RNA or how this gene is expressed. What is this rec A expression? Well, it's a gene that is expressed all the time in microbes. And that's kind of set as a standard so that you can use that to compare to your gene expression to make sure what you're measuring is standardized the entire time. And then there was a little wonder if there's this thing called type six secretion if that was having an effect on cholera colonization and what is that so it's kind of a defense mechanism bacteria have the type six secretion system it's like think of a sword that microbes use to stab each other and inject poisons into the other one it's kind of used as protection or like a competition for microbes like get out of my area i want to live here so was this a reason why we were seeing uh higher uh, cholera and the dysbiotic communities however when we looked at the gene expression for this or we no i'm sorry when we had a mutant that couldn't do this there wasn't any difference in colonization so we've we knew that there's something else out there another gene mechanism that's allowing for the cholera to colonize or to become susceptible and this is where selma went into gathering the human microbiomes and i Do not envy her for this. This took a lot of processing of human samples, a lot of human subjects that... So there's an anecdotal uh, story about this where our PI was trying to show us how to process it. And you collect a sample. You have to freeze it first for processing later. So he takes it out. We have it in this chamber. And he's trying to work with it. And it's frozen and... It chips, but the chip flies across the chamber to the other side. And we're all laughing, and he's just looking at us saying, don't do that. Even though these were healthy microbiomes, we still saw over a log difference in colonization depending on the human donor. So even though these people are quote-unquote healthy, we're still seeing this variation. So we don't know why. So why is this? Well, Selma develops this pipeline where she randomly is taking different microbes— and mashing them together into, I believe, like five strains. And she's taking healthy bacteria, dysbiotic bacteria, putting them together, putting them in mice, and seeing them in the colonization. And in the end of the day, we see this species called Blausia obium. And it is significantly associated with reduced cholera colonization. Is this difference that we're seeing in the human healthy subjects? Is this due to specific species? Also, the dysbiotic members... All show a significantly higher level of cholera so now we're seeing hey we have specific species that are actually affecting cholera significantly as opposed to others and now this is where I actually come into play so we're looking at why is cholera being downregulated? we look at a couple of things the first thing that we looked at was something called um, AI2 so are, is, are any of you Familiar with what's called quorum sensing?
2: No, I'll I'll need to uh I'll need a primer on this.
0: It, this is pretty cool. I mean, a lot of what microbes do is cool. It's just another way microbes regulate themselves. So microbes will secrete this chemical in the environment, but it doesn't do anything to them until they reach a certain density. So they this is all dependent on how many microbes of the same species are in the environment. The more and more uh, they divide, the more and more they grow they'll secrete this chemical to a point where it's like a dose dependent like it tips over the edge and it starts regulating genes in that microbe this particular compound ai2 has been shown to down regulate cholera genes and cholera actually produces it itself as well It's actually kind of comes into uh, a certain stage of the infection now the cholera will they grow in your gut specifically the small intestines and they get denser and denser and then they reach a point where they actually start reducing the amount of toxin or the amount of pilus formation that they make based off of this. If you think about it, it's a great way to spread. So they kind of just fall out into the feces because of that. And because of that, they're able to spread into the environment And then spread into a new host. So it's kind of a, it's a pretty, like, you wouldn't think about it, but it's like, wow, you're actually causing yourself not to cause disease in order to get into someone else to cause disease. So is this a reason that cholera is downregulating? More specifically, it's been shown that other species of bacteria can produce this, especially Blausiobium. Is this the reason why we're seeing it? Well, Short answer: No. Why? Some of our samples we have heat treated. We had uh, purified homogenous intestines, which requires boiling the samples, and we're still seeing this effect of activation. However, when you boil AI two, that chemical AI two, it's destroyed. It's heat liable, so we're still seeing this effect. Well, what is this effect? Well, it turns out to be a uh, bile salt or a bile acid, and so this ends up being like a a signal to induce cholera uh, to infect or use uh, for its virulence genes to activate. Now, bile acids and bile salts. If you don't know, they're you've all heard of bile, right? It comes from your your liver. It goes into your small intestines, and what bile does is it it breaks down fats into smaller globules for you to digest. Not only that, depending on its structure, it can be actually antimicrobial too. There's a specific one that has been shown to in previous studies that actually upregulates the virulence activation substantially. So what I did is I subjected cholera to different types of bile acids. And you can see that activation in figure 6b. Let's go over what uh, these different acids are quickly. So if you see taurine or glycine, bile acids are conjugated to amino acids.
1: That just means that they're connected, right?
0: Right, right. That's done in the liver. It seems like Torocholate and glycocholate, those are primary bile acids. So there's primary and secondary, and that refers to like if they've been like broken down by microbes, you start with primary and then they you can unconjugate by my uh with microbes so that snaps off that amino acid. You still have your bile acid, and then it can be broken down further and further and further. Cholera does not like. Unconjugated or secondary bile acids. It likes that primary bile acid. Guess what microbe likes to break down that bile acid? It's that Blausia obium. Why does it do that? Well, it turns out that it has this enzyme called bile salt hydrolase, and that's the enzyme that breaks it down. And so I talked about toricolate, uh, which is a bile acid, and this was actually the only bile acid that induces virulence activation in cholera. What we ended up doing, or what I ended up doing, is I ended up taking stock solutions of bile acids and subjecting it to cholera. And you can see in the paper that toriquoit is pretty potent in activating its virulence. In this paper, I use a reporter strain. Now, if anyone doesn't know what a reporter strain is, it's showing not directly, but indirectly, virulence activation. So it's a way to measure virulence activation, or it's a way to measure something through some sort of assay. So we use a reporter strain of cholera that had antibiotic resistance to a particular antibiotic, and it had part of one of the virulence genes on it. So, in theory, it The bile acid will cause the antibiotic resistance to to build up in this strain and prevent death when I subject it to the antibiotic resistance. Or to the antibiotic, I'm sorry. So the more the bile acid that is there, the more the activation of this resistance. We can see that torocholate can activate virulence activation. We can see that through this reporter strain. I subjected all our strains to the bile acid, the bile salt, and then I took that supernatant or the liquid from the culture I was growing with that bile acid, and, and then I subjected cholera
3: to it. I have a question about torocholid. Is it an, like an endogenous bile salt that's like just naturally produced in humans or mice, or is, is it something that's induced by cholera infection? Because it seems counterintuitive that like a human component is something that makes it more susceptible to infections. You'd think that would have been evolutioned out over over time.
0: So it is naturally
2: produced in humans. Something uh, that important for fat digestion would just be too difficult to evolution out. So despite the cholera existing, I, I have a feeling that it just had to stick and continue existing.
0: I think it's harder for humans because we reproduce so much slower than bacteria to to select out for that. Especially since uh, cholera is not endemic worldwide, too. We don't have that pressure constantly.
3: But cholera has been around for a while, right? I, 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 I know nothing about the history of cholera infections, but...
0: The oldest... They think the oldest known writing of it is actually in a temple in India. So they believe it actually started in the Ganges River, originated from the Ganges River, because there's a temple in India that kind of depicts similar symptoms to cholera. I think that's like over 3000 BC.
2: I'm wondering if you have a take on this. Knowing that Obium can actually like confer some kind of cholera
0: resistance,
2: would it be a reasonable public health intervention to get this bacteria in more people's microbiome somehow
0: that's a great question this is actually a complex situation because not only do you have a microbe, but you also have nutritional needs and nutritional how much nutrition areas can get too. right uh not only is it antibiotics or pathogens that affect your gut microbiome it's also food uh the availability of food like malnutrition is Very detrimental. Ideally, yes, but not only do you have nutritional and malnutrition as being a factor, you have to be able to get bloushy opium to everyone or to populations without it dying, which may be the hardest part, actually. I'm actually experiencing that because as a biotherapeutic in our at my work, we need to be able to Do something that's called lyophilization or dry it out uh, and put it in a pill. And to be able to keep that microbe alive is actually a lot more difficult than you would think.
2: Oh, so we can't just spray this on a common kind of food in an area where cholera is endemic and Hope that works to reduce the amount of cholera.
0: The thing about gut bacteria is a lot of them, I can't remember for blush or opium, but a lot of them are considered strict anaerobes where oxygen actually kills them. And so you need to be able to preserve them in a way to minimize like oxygen exposure to get them to other people. Ideally, like like I said, a lyophilization or drying out would be a way to do that. Does that protect them from the oxygen? Uh... It depends on how you're preserving them.
2: So I guess there goes the idea of like just spraying it all over some kind of common grain like rice or corn or wheat or whatever.
0: It would be great. Like maybe if if we found like a, what is it, a bacteroides species, those are generally oxygen tolerant. To do the same thing, that'd be great. Or I'm actually going to get into it in a second about genetically engineering.
1: Make an aerobic species have this like ability to break down bile acid.
0: But then at the same time, you're introducing you know, bacteria into on a foreign environment? And are you disrupting the local environment? Yeah, that raises some like
3: big bioethics questions.
2: Not to mention, uh, who knows what we might be doing if we uh, hypothetically got this bacteria in everyone, right? Might be making everybody in the population slightly less good at digesting fat, which sounds like it would have a whole host of other problems.
0: Maybe I'll answer that in a little bit because I kind of get into bile salt hydrolase and all that in a little bit. (laughs) So we know that uh, torquoise, both published in, in this paper, we see that toracolate or toracolic acid induces these virulence genes to be to become active. So what I did is I I took PBS. That is phosphate buffered solution. So that's just a solution that is resistant to acid to change in pH. I added this biosalt toracolate to PBS and then I added a standardized Uh, amount of bacteria to it from each strain and if you look at figure 6b you can see the effect uh what i did is i took the after 24 hours i spun down those samples took what's called the supernatant which is just like the liquid so when you spin down microbes you can get a pellet and all the liquid above that pellet is called supernatant and i subjected call uh our reporter strain to that and you can see that the strains that are in black Those are all the ones in our resistant community. You can see varying effects of virulence activation. There's a couple of strains, particularly Obium is pretty low and also B. vulgatus is also low. And interestingly, you see the dysbiotic, they show higher virulence activation so we're seeing strains particularly Obium, that does not have or that is inhibiting this and we know it's not ai2 and so we were also able to replicate this in intestinal homogenate which is figure 6a so what is intestinal homogenate so what i did is i took intestines from infant mice and i pretty much um, chopped them up and purified that purified them so that there was only bile hydrolase left. And I, again, subjected, uh, I have Obium, I have S. salivarius, which did not show a decrease in virulence activation, and a mixture. And we're seeing that Obium is decreasing the virulence activation in cholera. You can also see that there's cholestyramine in there. And cholestyramine is actually a, a compound, it's a resin actually, that what it does is it will take bile acid and take it out of solution. So I treated some samples with cholestytamine. So we know for certain that when you use cholestytamine, the verlin's activation goes down. But when you look at Blauschea opium, it's pretty similar. So we know that whatever Blauschea opium is doing, it's doing it to torocholate. I alluded before that it has bile salt hydrolase. So at the time that we did this, we looked on um, a couple of databases and Blossary Obium actually has what they call a putative, I'll put it that in quotations, putative basal hydrolase. What is that? It, that means that it has what looks like it has the gene for basal hydrolase, but it hasn't been proven. So one of the graduate students was able to put this on a plasmid and transform E. coli to have this, this quote-unquote gene. And what do we see? Well, we see that this E. coli that has this gene is able to decrease virulence activation substantially. Not only is it able to do that in PBS, but it's also to do that in homogenate. So we're it because of that, we can say yes, Blushy opium has biosolid hydrolase, and it is breaking that bond between taurine and cholate, so that cholera cannot use it as a virulence acting factor. In essence, we're seeing that this is possibly why Blushy opium is such so good at preventing cholera infections all right so this works outside the animal but does it work inside the animal what we did is we colonized suckling mice again with either e coli or e coli that has that gene and if you look at figure 6f you can see that there's a significant difference in the cholera per mouse so in the end we were able to show that yeah this gene does have a significant effect on cholera and I was really happy when that one worked too. I was like, yes. But Biosod Hydrolis isn't all created equal either. And we go into this a little bit in the paper. So there's there was a paper that was published, I believe, in 2019 that grouped Biosol in into different classes based off of their, I believe it's their amino acid composition. So it's it's based off of their amino acid composition. So the amino acids of proteins actually dictate how it's shaped, and, and changes in amino acids can affect how that how that protein works. They showed in that paper that these different types of biosol hydrolases affect different Bile acids differently. And it turns out that in that paper, type 1 bile salt hydrolase had a great effect on torocholate. And when we actually compared Blauscher bile salt hydrolase, we, we saw this as type 1 bile salt hydrolase. That might also account for how the different bacteria in the complex resistant or how the resistant microbiome how they had different effects on gene expression it's possible that well a lot of them have hydrolase, but it turns out they have different quote-unquote types of hydrolase. so in the end they may be able to break down that bond between the amino acid and the bile acid but the type may have different efficacies or efficiency to be able to break down that bond one of the graduate students uh, i believe it was selma looked for biosod hydrolase in previous studies. In figure 7a, she was able to look at previous studies along with our cohort and was able to see that type 1 biosod hydrolase was actually those that had cholera diarrhea that had very low amounts and our healthy control had higher amounts. So it's kind of suggesting that maybe those that are susceptible to infections of cholera have low amounts of this type 1 biosod hydrolase in their gut microbiome. And not only is this true in diarrhea or dysbiotic microbiomes, it's also true in healthy microbiomes. The reason I say that is there, the figure next to it, or figure B, is I took a subset of those human microbiomes, or the human fecal samples that Selma had collected, and I subjected... Torcolate to it, and you can see different names on here where it says Torcolate, Colate, and Colate. What that is, is it is just, it's torcholate that has the taurine removed from it. So that's biosolid hydrolase activity and then deoxycholate. That's a different system. So you can see some of these, some of these healthy microbiomes, they're really good at breaking that bond between taurine and cholate and some are not. So in the end, what we really saw is we see this gene, biosolid hydrolase, particularly type 1 BSH, which really has a significant effect on torocolate, which is a, it's big in inducing virulence activation and cholera. Not only do we see differences in healthy but dysbiotic people, and I remember Raymond said something about why not giving People you, opium. Well, that might be a potential future aspect. And I know I said it; it's really difficult. But if we could try to figure out that as a therapeutic, that might be a future pre-treatment or even treatment for color infections to try to prevent people from getting this disease. So I feel like our paper went did pretty good in showing that this enzyme was pretty good at. Prevent, or at least down-regulating cholera, to help prevent infections. The only other thing that we could have done, but you know, this requires a lot of funding, is to get human subjects. And there has been human subjects uh, willingly to get cholera infections, but that requires a hospital stay and a lot of funding. And that's something with someone that has a lot more money.
2: Yeah, that sounds like it would be an incredibly difficult challenge study to put together. Would that be an um, ethically difficult ch- like study to put together, too, as a result of that? Be- because you're giving people something that can be pretty dangerous?
0: I think it depends on the pathogen. So I will say for col- Vibrio cholera uh, in the U.S., probably not. So I say that because... The biggest treatment for cholera infections is hydration therapy. And you're talking about, you know, like saline, some of the severely dehydrated saline IV, or you can take those drinks that have like a lot of electrolytes. In the hospital setting, I would say it's pretty not, the chances of death are very low. You can get, if you're well hydrated, three or four days, you'll start seeing the cholera infection subsiding and you should be not pooping yourself constantly in a couple days after that ethically like you obviously you need to make sure people are well informed before doing that but if it's in the hospital setting i would say it's pretty safe i will say like another pathogen that is actually relate not related to cholera but related to bile acids is c diff uh so it's a uh, clostridium difficile it's this infection that is popping up more and more in the hospital and like retirement home setting it's um, a type of bacteria that seems to be opportunistic, and the only way to really get rid of it is through, like, heavy antibiotic use. But even then, you'll see reoccurring infections occurring, and that's where fecal microbiome transplants actually come in. That FNT is that's the probably the best way to treat reoccurring infections of that. It's just to take, they have pill now, pills now, but what they used to do is take a, a tube and shove it down into your intestines and like introduce the the fecal matter there. That also uses bile acids to go from a spore to vegetative cell state. But like something like that, because it's reoccurring and it has a high morta- higher mortality rate, I would say like that ethically speaking, you couldn't do a human trial on.
2: Well, I'm glad uh, we live in a world where, at least in a uh, developed country, uh, medicine cholera infection is pretty tractable. Not super, uh, not extremely deadly or extremely dangerous.
0: And that also goes to developing country, not only for you know treatment of wastewater, but also access to like rehydration therapy or access to a hospital. Something that. I was wondering,
2: would be possible? I'd like to hear your take on this. Uh, if to um, put together a massive community or uh, a community-based study, where you'd give lots of people, where you'd somehow alter the microbiomes of entire communities. And see if that decreases rates of uh, cholera infections or at least makes it less bad. Um, do you think something like that could happen in a place where cholera is endemic?
0: If they can make, like, let's say, blousy opium, if they are able to make that so it doesn't perish because of it, if it's a strict anaerobe, I think, I can see that being a potential treatment. Like, if you can make a pill of that, like a, a probiotic pill of it, then I can see that as a potential, like, treatment. Another thing, too, would be, I think I mentioned before, would is, like, malnutrition. So another would be to try different nutrition sources for people. People that come in from malnutrition, they usually give high-fat diets for people to gain weight, and that's a lot of peanut butter, but, but that's not necessarily the best course of action. And a way you could try is, like, different, different foods to try to, like, really increase decrease malnutrition and try to increase the health of the microbiome in that area. One more thing that I didn't say before is particularly bangladesh there's a lot of antibiotic use surprisingly along with antibiotic uses if you're taking antibiotics that's going to disrupt your disrupt your microbiome that's going to kill off bacteria in your gut that's also going to affect cholera infections unfortunately as well there's been a lot of studies also seen showing that taking antibiotics affects your gut microbiome and depending on what you do it can take a while to get back to normal and that can take upwards to years for some people.
1: So I think this this conversation brings me to a question that I like to ask at the end of each episode, which is, what's something that you're excited to see or that you want to see in this area of research going forward?
3: Yeah, I mean, for me, the things that I'm really excited for is just, I think we're still in the very early stages of the characterization of how the microbiome interacts with us as we develop and how it shapes our development and we in turn shape its development. Um, I think I think it's this whole relationship which is a huge part of our biology and and you know it has been severely unexplored. So it's 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 exciting to see kind of the stuff that comes out of it, be it therapeutic or just characterization or just, I, I I think it's fascinating.
0: What about you, Raymond?
2: Yeah, as a clinician in training, something that really excites me is um being able to um uh, eventually do things with this, whether it's trials on whether we can make specific changes to microbiomes to alter uh, the outcomes of diseases, or in a very, very ambitious idea, like altering the microbiomes of entire communities of people to see what we can get out of that, whether it's making cholera less bad or um, reducing how often people get C. diff infections in hospitals. If we're talking about hospital-based populations or nursing home populations, um, that's something that really excites me. Um, I'm looking forward to a day where we routinely use this kind of new knowledge of the microbiome to improve clinical outcomes or community health-level like outcomes.
0: I'd have to say I'm pretty similar. So the pharmaceutical and the biotech industry, they're really looking for proof of concept right now. And right now we know that C. diff can be treated with fecal microbiome transplants, but that comes with some issues. I mean, you can't, you have to get human samples constantly you have you can't guarantee like what species are in there every single time or how how many microbes are in there so c diff is probably the best example of there there's a couple of companies out there that are i think they're getting close they're getting closer than most for some product but if you know one company that comes out with like a a biotherapeutic it's like this consortium of microbes specifically can help prevent it will help treat or prevent disease i i feel like this is a proof of concept that we really need and help like vitalize the market for more research towards that
1: absolutely so thank you all for uh being on this very interesting episode um do any of you have any projects or any uh anything you'd like to plug before we go
3: yeah i am i am a i'm a co-host and producer on another science podcast uh, we're called In the Spotlight, and we like to, uh, to talk to early career researchers, such as the guests on the show, uh, about the research, why it's important to them, how they do it, uh, and how and why the, the public should care about it. Um, so I recommend anyone who's interested to, to check that out. We have a wide range of topics, so I'm sure you'll find something that might pique your curiosity.
0: And I'm on an, a podcast as well, The Micro Moment, where we kind of dive into different aspects of microbiology. We, we interview different people from different fields of microbiology. We dive into history of microbiology, and we also try to do things like talk about some current events in microbiology. So check that out if you can.
1: Amazing. Yeah, please do do go check out both of their podcasts. They are absolutely wonderful. And thank you all for joining us on the 10th episode of In Plain English. We've been discussing Interpersonal Gut Microbiome Variation Drives Susceptibility and Resistance to Cholera Infection by Salma Alavi et al. As always, you can find this paper for free to download on our website at inplainenglishpod.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at plainenglishsci. that's P-L-A-I-N-E-N-G-L-I-S-H-S-C-I. Make sure to subscribe to In Plain English on Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And you can become a supporter of this podcast on Patreon. Thanks again for listening and tune in next month for another episode of In Plain English.